I'll readily admit, I get a little um, knot in my stomach and I get a little uh, visceral reaction every time I hear a certain moniker given to uh, the person in today's uh, gospel that everyone's attention seems to be drawn to, and that is, of course, Thomas. So on the count of three, I want all of you to get it out of your system and, and for me just to get it over with, uh, to, to name who, what the uh, nickname of Thomas is. And I think you all know what I'm referring to, and so on the count of three, one, two, three. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I, I have to admit I'm frustrated by that nickname because he wasn't any more of a doubter than any of the other apostles. Especially when you look at Mark's gospel. Yesterday, uh, the daily mass reading was the end of the gospel, and it seems to be a take on uh, that Mark, St. Mark went back and added a little bit more. And he shares that Mary Magdalene came back with news that the tomb was empty and, and that the Lord had been risen, and they did not believe. And then two who had been out walking in the country, the road to Emmaus story that we heard on Wednesday, came back and said that he had appeared to them, and they would not believe. And then he appeared to the ten, and he calls them, Oh, you of how, how slow you are to not believe. And so maybe that's where we pick up in John's gospel. He appears to these ten. They've had an experience of him. They experienced him, but until they experienced him, they could not believe. They wouldn't believe the witness of others, Mary Magdalene, Clopas, and his companion. They could not believe. And for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there that day. I have to admit, I find myself frustrated by that, too. Uh, Clopas and his companion are, are leaving town on, on Sunday. They know that the tomb is empty. They, they've heard stories of, of Mary Magdalene coming back and, and this vision of angels and the tomb being empty, and, and, and they're leaving town seven miles away. Now, that doesn't sound much for us. We can hop in our car and be there within 10 minutes. Walking, though, that's about a two-hour walk. They're leaving town just when it's getting interesting. And of course, Jesus confronts them. And they end up going back after they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. But Thomas is not there. I, I joke, he had no fear of missing out. None whatsoever. For whatever reason, he just wasn't there. And so when the disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord, I, I cannot believe. I cannot believe until I put my finger in the nail marks and put my hand into his side. It was no different than the other apostles in, in the end. They needed to see in order to believe, too. And so the next week, that eighth day, the second Sunday after Easter, today, He's there with them, maybe he has fear of missing out now. Should Christ appear again, he doesn't want to miss out. And Christ appears, peace be with you. And notice exactly, immediately, what Christ does. Go ahead, Thomas. If you need to put your finger in the nail marks, go ahead. I'll make myself vulnerable to you. If you need to put your hand into my side, the side that was pierced, 
The side from which blood and water flowed as the soldier pierced my heart. Go ahead. I'll make my, myself vulnerable again. I'll allow you to hurt me again. Well, whether Christ could hurt or not is a, is a theological question, but still it's pretty vulnerable to open up one side to more exploration. And notice what John does not record. John does not record Thomas poking his finger in the hole. Thomas does not record, or John does not record St. Thomas putting his hand into the side. Rather, he cries out, my Lord and my God. Actually, none of the other apostles are recorded to have said the same. Thomas cries out this twofold proclamation that Jesus is Lord, God, Master, and God. My Lord and my God. Jesus calls him to task, but doesn't condemn him for being a doubter. He was a skeptic. A few years ago, my, I was at my aunt's funeral, and they had the other episode where uh, Thomas kind of displays himself. Jesus says, I'm going, and where I'm going, you, you know the way. And Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Oh, Thomas. I am the way and the truth and the life. My aunt's funeral, she was from Missouri, and I said, well, I think this might be fitting because I knew her well enough to say she was a pure Missourian. Show me. Maybe Thomas was from, from Missouri too. Show me. I need to see it. I need to experience it with my own eyes. I need to feel it with my own hands. I need to, I need to be there. Again, nothing necessarily wrong, but it's more blessed to believe without seeing, to believe without seeing with these eyes of flesh. That's where we come in. Blessed are we who believe without seeing. We don't see Jesus Christ in the flesh. We don't experience him coming through locked doors, much less unlocked doors. We don't have him breathing on us saying, receive the Holy Spirit. We're not given the same grace to experience Jesus Christ in the flesh. But we do experience Jesus Christ, and with the eyes of faith, he stands in our presence this day. He stands in in sacred presence on this altar as we receive him, his body and blood, soul, and divinity in this Eucharist. But he would say to us the same thing he did to Thomas. Go ahead. See. See. There's something beautiful about this whole episode. I've already mentioned it, how Christ allows Thomas, makes himself vulnerable to Thomas. This is the very nature of mercy. Mercy is entering, as some have said, entering the misery of another, uh, playing on the words of, of, uh, from Latin, miserere, to enter the misery of another's heart. Or better yet, mercy is the act of giving somebody what they need to thrive, not necessarily what they deserve, but what they need. Mercy is entering the harm and the hurt of another, of feeling 
of suffering with compassion. I uh, did my master's thesis on mercy, and so I know all the words, and there is a particular idiom uh, that is particularly good, and it's a little earthy, but to have mercy is to not withhold one's bowels to the other, that you let it all flow. St. Paul uses that idiom of saying, so-and-so is not merciful to me is how it's usually translated, but it's an idiom they constipated themselves. It's kind of a funny thing if you think about it. Mercy is about feeling and allowing everything to be felt. Jesus Christ is merciful. He stands before Thomas and says, go ahead. And Jesus Christ remains and continues to be merciful. He gives us everything we need. That, Like I already said, we do not see him with these eyes of flesh, but he gives us mercy all the same in his sacred presence in this Eucharist, in the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism that uh, throughout the world we celebrated, of course, last week. We're privileged this morning after Mass to have a baptism. How all of us, most of us at least, have been baptized. That's Christ's mercy. How Christ gives us these little moments of mercy, particular to us, of what we need. Sometimes that mercy might be experienced in a smile when we're feeling a little down. These days we're seeing less and less smiles. That's my frustration with the masks. Or it might be a little act of mercy from a neighbor, a little kind note. The God reaching us, God calling out to us, God standing before us and our neighbors and our friends and our family and a stranger saying, I know what you need, and here it is. If Christ is so merciful to us, then we need to be merciful to others too. To be able to enter into their pain, into their suffering. I'm thinking particularly of some, of, some people who have lost loved ones. In particular, I'm thinking of a particular family that lost two children to a house fire some years ago. How just being there with them was mercy, as hard as it was. They didn't need anyone to preach to them. They didn't need anyone to say much to them. Just to say that God is here. That's mercy. On this Divine Mercy Sunday, we call to mind all these ways that God is merciful. That, like Thomas, unlike Thomas perhaps, we need to take it on the faith of others. The good thing is, here's the good news, we don't have just 10 people saying Christ is risen. We have 2,000 years of saints. We have millions of people throughout the world who have experienced a risen Christ. And perhaps like Thomas, though not in the same grand sphere, maybe, we're called to proclaim the gospel. See, this is what we forget, and this is why I get so frustrated by the moniker Downing Thomas. Because after the death and resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus, after Pentecost, Thomas went to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. There are Christians among us in this world that can trace their spiritual lineage to the preaching of St. Thomas, especially those in India. A whole rite, a whole rite of the Catholic Church traces their lineage to St. Thomas. Was he a doubter? 
No, he just needed to see. In fact, I'd like to point out, Bishop Ninestead was ordained by a bishop who was ordained by a bishop, da-da-da, on and on. If you go back all the way to the apostles, which apostle was it that ordained the bishop that eventually, through line, ordained Bishop Ninestead? St. Thomas. Bishop Ninestead ordained Bishop Lavore. So his lineage goes back to St. Thomas. We don't know who our next bishop is going to be. We pray for God's mercy uh, for that uh, selection process. It may or may not be St. Thomas, but there's only 12 apostles. But we call to mind that Thomas was no longer a man of doubt, but rather died for the faith, being, be, being beheaded by one of the rulers in India, being put to death for Christ who was crucified and risen for him, who gave him mercy. And in that mercy, Thomas experienced faith. 